Father, we are in a world that so desperately needs to know you and is so searching, Father, for the answers to life's troubles. They search in so many ways where they hope to find the answers to life's pains and troubles and trials, whether that's in medicine, whether that's in entertainment or pursuits of distraction. They look for things in relationships, in drink, in food. Always searching, Father, for a way to take away the pain that they have in their lives because of sin, because of their sin or because of the world's sin. We share some of these experiences with them, Father. But one thing we have that they don't, we have the very solution. We know, Father, that with the faith we have in Christ, we have overcome this world. We transcend it. There is something far greater waiting for us, Father, in our time after death, in the kingdom, in the presence of the Lord, a time of glory, a time of freedom from pain and from suffering, a time in which we will know all things and live according to your word so that we will please you perfectly. This is a thing we can hardly imagine, Father, for it seems so foreign to our daily experience. But it is something we have assured to us by our faith. It is a promise that will be kept. And it is the solution, Father, for what the world knows, for what it suffers in. And so I do hope, Father, that you have kept this church going. You have continued to support and provide. You have continued to train and lead us, Father, so that we would be effective in bringing that message. We'd never lose sight of the mission, that all the things we do are means to that end, that all the ways in which we spend time together is preparation for that opportunity. I pray that we'd have an outward heart, an outward look, an outward mindset, so that as we study even distant things in the book of Ezekiel, we'd find reason, we'd find opportunity, we'd see ways in which it can support the mission that you've given us, to have a heart of mercy, to rescue those who are due the judgment we all were once due, but that we might save them as you saved us, through the message of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in our study of Ezekiel. This is a book of a prophet given a series of visions. Each of these visions is an explanation from God about some events that were coming upon Israel that lead to a seismic shift in the relationship that God has with His people at this point in history. But along the way, He also alludes to another coming shift back to a place where God and His people are in fellowship in a new and better way. So this is a a very important book. It explains what has happened and tells us a lot about what will happen. So one of the first things anyone learns about God is they study the Bible or they get to know God in Sunday school is His omnipresence. It's a very fancy word for God being spirit and therefore in everywhere at all times. And when you hear in this story that the glory of God has come to dwell among men in his tabernacle or temple, that can sound a bit confusing to someone who has studied this concept or even heard of this concept of the omnipresence of God. If God is already everywhere, then what's the significance of him saying that he's dwelling in this one place for this one period of time? What's different about the glory of God dwelling, the Shekinah glory, versus just saying God is always with us? Well, we've been exploring that question, or Ezekiel's been exploring that question to some degree over the last several weeks as we study the departure of the glory of God. What does it mean that he leaves from his place of dwelling in the temple in Ezekiel's day? The visions that Ezekiel's received in the chapters we've studied so far, 8 through now into 11 today, they all collectively explain some events that are about to happen in the city of Jerusalem 
And they're explaining him from a spiritual point of view. They're showing you the backstory, the why of what's happening in a way that you could not have seen just by watching the events themselves. Let's recap for a moment. In chapter 8, we saw Ezekiel predicting the end of the city. And he did it through that 14-month-long street performance that God had him conduct in front of his people in Babylon. So chapter 8 was about the fact that there would be a siege on the city and a destruction of the city. Chapter 9 began to narrow down and focus in on what would that be like. We learned in chapter 9 that the Lord had decreed the death of all those who were in the city who were ungodly and the saving of a remnant. And in the midst of that, we see the glory of God beginning to move away. He moved from the Holy of Holies, his residence in the temple, to the threshold, to the door. Chapter 10, we studied last week. In this, we saw the city itself being destroyed by God's judgment. And the glory of God moved a little further from the doorway now to the east gate of the temple courtyard. And along the path as we've watched this happening, we've been asking the question, or at least I've been trying to ask the question, what does all this mean? What's the point in all of this? Why is the Lord's glory moving? Why is he moving in this fashion? Why is the Lord explaining his departure in such detail? Why is he moving so slowly? And maybe even more than that, we should be asking, why does God's glory dwell among men in the first place? Why does he have this feature? Well, today in chapter 11, we're going to see the final installment in this section, this particular prophecy, the second one we've looked at so far in the book. And today, the glory of God will make one final stop on its way out of the city. And in the course of this final stop, we get to learn the Lord's plan for a future day of return. And to put it simply, we're going to sum all of this up. We get a better understanding of everything God is doing through this section. As always, though, we need to begin with the text. So let's look at Ezekiel chapter 11. I'll read verses 1 through 12. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. And behold, there were 25 men at the entrance of the gate, and among them I saw Jaazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Benaniah, leaders of the people. He said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in this city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. The city is the pot, and we are the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them, son of man, prophesy. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord, So you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling its streets with them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of the city, are the flesh, and this city is the pot. But I will bring you out of it. You have feared a sword, so I will bring a sword upon you, the Lord God declares. And I will bring you out of the midst of the city and deliver you into the hands of the strangers and execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you to the border of Israel so that you shall know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it, but I will judge you to the border of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Well, once again, it's a prophecy of judgment. But you notice at the outset in verse 1, this is a continuation of our scene. He starts with the word moreover, and that indicates we're just moving forward in the same picture, the same scene. As I mentioned last week, I see this somewhat cinematically, like a movie that just keeps playing from scene to scene. So... We're moving away from the moment we studied last week where you saw the cherubim land by the temple to escort the glory of God out of the building. We use the analogy of a military rescue, if you remember. 
And the glory of God is moving because it's found no sanctuary in the Holy of Holies because the priests, remember from chapters back, we had the 25 priests who were worshiping the sun right outside the temple. Those are the men who go into that building and minister inside that building. And those men were no longer fit to do that. So the Lord has no sanctuary there anymore. But then he moved to the threshold and filled the court with his glory. But he couldn't stay in the court either because there you had the leaders worshiping in the walls of that court. Remember? Bugs and creatures and things from Egypt, we said. So there's no sanctuary for the Lord in his court. So he moved from his court to the east gate, which leads out of the court into the temple itself and into the city. That's where we last left the glory of God, hovering over the east gate of the wall that surrounds the temple. Now the Spirit has transported Ezekiel in his vision to that place. Now he's moved to the gate itself, presumably above it or some scene looking down on it. And he says right outside this gate, so now this is outside the temple itself, outside the courtyard. Outside that gate stood another group of 25 men. Now this is a different group than the 25 priests that we saw earlier in this vision. This earlier group in chapter 8 were priests because they were serving right in the place of the temple by the threshold. Only priests could go to that place. But these men are described differently here. They're described as leaders among those in the city. And these would be, therefore, the civic leaders of the city. And it would be natural to expect them here. Remember from past studies we've done on Ruth or studies we've done in, in Old Testament books elsewhere, we've learned that the gates of the city were the place in which administrative business was conducted for the city. Those who lived outside the city could come in. Those who lived inside the city could go out to the gate. And they could meet in that place. It's a place of security. So you'd end up with judges there. Or other civic leaders rendering judgment. Doing business. And that's what you see happening here in the East Gate. Among these men are two who Ezekiel must have recognized because he could name them. And we don't know anything about these guys except their names, but it proves that the names itself are what matter. The name Jazaniah means God hears, and the name Pelatiah means God delivers. God hears, God delivers. And those names prove ironically prophetic in light of the circumstances. Because God says these men, the leaders, are supposed to be those who would dispense godly advice to the residents of the city, but instead what they've been doing is devising sin and giving evil advice and leading the people astray. And the Lord gives Ezekiel a couple of examples of what these men have been doing. First, It says, they advise the people not to build houses, saying the city is the pot and we are the flesh. This is a very obscure reference that you have to get some background on to understand. And so to understand the statement, we have to know something about what the people had already been told by one of Ezekiel's contemporaries, a prophet named Jeremiah. Remember, Ezekiel is a prophet to Israel while they're in Babylon. Ezekiel has already been taken captive. He's living in Babylon. What he hears, he's telling to the captives. At the same time, though, there are still those who are in the city who have not yet been removed from the city. And in that day, you have another prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is living in Jerusalem still while Ezekiel is in Babylon. What God is telling one, he's telling the other in slightly different ways, but not fundamentally different. And back in the city, you have poor Jeremiah, poor unloved, persecuted Jeremiah, speaking to who remain about what is yet to come. And by the time of this prophecy in the days of the exiles, Jeremiah had already given a prophecy to the rest of the city. Remember, he's living with them, so he and the city have both witnessed what's already taken place. They've seen Babylon capture Jerusalem once, haul off people. Daniel was among that first group. Secondly, they came back a few years later, hauled off some more people. Ezekiel went in that second wave. 
So they're sitting in the city now, having seen this happen twice. What do you think the fair, reasonable assumption should be for those who are still in the city with Jeremiah? Do you think they ought to be assuming that more of the same is likely? That Babylon could come back at any time and do it a third time? Wouldn't that be the reasonable assumption? And the Lord spoke to them through Jeremiah concerning that very possibility that your brothers and sisters have been hauled off to Babylon and your city has been plundered a couple times already. So in speaking to the people through Jeremiah, the Lord said, you're next. Don't expect this to stop. We're not done yet. And here's what Jeremiah told the people specifically out of Jeremiah 21. That they should submit to the Babylonians when the Babylonians come back. Don't fight them. Let them come. They're going to take you. Be ready for it. And it's coming because they're an instrument of my judgment. You can't stop them, basically. That's what they were hearing from Jeremiah. By the way, if you ever wonder why Jeremiah was so persecuted, now you're getting a better idea, right? Here's what Jeremiah said to them in Jeremiah 21.8. God speaking through Jeremiah. He says, You shall also say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who dwells in the city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans who are besieging you will live. And he will have his own life as booty. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will burn it with fire. So the Lord said plainly to the people, if you want to live, go out of the city and surrender to the Babylonians. And your reward, your booty as he put it, will be keeping your life. You'll go into exile, but you won't die. Or you can stay in the city and you're going to die and he's going to put the city to fire. Furthermore, in the later chapter, Jeremiah 29, and here's where it becomes important for us today. In Jeremiah 29, he told the people that you need to start to prepare your minds and your hearts to live in Babylon. You need to set your mind to making a way of life for yourselves when you get there. Because you're not going to be there a short time, you're going to be there a while. Here's what he says, Jeremiah 29.4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have set you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. That's a pretty challenging statement, isn't it? Pray for Babylon, so that you will have welfare while you live in that city. Do you notice what he said, though? He said, set your mind on this long-term stay in Babylon. In fact, you're going to be there so long, you should just go on, build houses, get married, have babies, let them get married, have grandchildren, you're going to be there a while. So prepare for it. This is not a short-term exile. Make the best of it. And to reassure them, he says, I will be providing for your welfare through the welfare of that city as you learn to live there in submission to my command. All right, now look back at Ezekiel 11 and look at verse 3. Look what the elders in the city are telling the people. Now remember, this is coming after what Jeremiah has already told them. The elders tell the people, now is not the time to build houses. They're not referencing houses being built in Jerusalem. They're directly referencing what they heard in Jeremiah 29.5, in which Jeremiah says, get ready to build houses. They're mocking Jeremiah's prophecy. They're saying the prophet was wrong. 
They're saying that a third exile is not going to happen. You don't have to be worried about building homes when you live in Babylon. It's not a problem. In fact, they go on to tell a second lie. In the second lie, they say, we're like flesh in a pot. Now, that doesn't sound very comforting to us, right? That sounds, you know, the old adage about out of the frying pan into the fire. And it doesn't really sound good, but they don't mean it that way. Their colloquialism had a different sense than we bring to it. The word pot means a cauldron or a basin, and you use it to cook food in over a fire. Today we would use a stove, but they would literally over open fire sometimes be cooking. If you just took meat that you wanted to prepare for a meal and put it over fire, what would happen to it? You just destroy it. I mean, campfires, we like to do that on a stick because it seems very rustic and we love the... But does it ever turn out very well? Do you actually ever like it? Isn't it kind of dry and crispy and it just doesn't work very well? It's not a good way to cook. When you put it in these pots or cauldrons, you're protecting the meat from the fire. I know that gets cooked, but think of it just in strict terms there. The leaders are saying to the residents, you live inside the protection of the city of Jerusalem. You have no need to fear the Babylonian army on the outside. They're the fire. The city is the pot. We're the flesh in the pot. It's not going to come in and burn us. We're protected. And so in the same way that meat in the pot isn't touched by fire outside the pot, so the people in the city won't be harmed either from the threat outside the city. The men who were giving this false advice, I assume their confidence is based in the fact that the glory of God was dwelling with them in the temple at the time. And so they mistakenly believe the glory of God is going to dwell with them forever. As long as he's here, nothing can happen to him. Nothing can happen to us. These are the kind of lies that these people were telling themselves and telling the people. So now look at the pattern we've seen across all these chapters. So far we have seen a corrupt high priest worshiping the sun, corrupt priesthood doing the same, corrupt elders worshiping bugs and creatures, now corrupt civic leaders who directly contradict the word of God, lying to the people. So it's really no wonder that the city is accepting or even celebrating all of the abominations that we've seen. In other words, the city really had no chance. The people were being led from every direction by men who did not know what was right. I think it would be easy for us to just scoff at this whole generation of Israel and say, how could they all be so foolish? How could they all be so ignorant? But when everyone leads you in the same evil direction, where no matter who you turn to, they're all moving that way, they'd be asking a lot for someone to go against that. In fact, I think it's impossible for people not to follow in that same general direction. That's why God is strict about the type of people, the kind of people you expect to be in those roles. They have to be men and women who are guided by the Spirit into the right things. Otherwise, your your expectation is the people will follow after the wrong things with them. That's what you see happening here in Israel. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't excuse the people. They're still accountable for what they did. The evil is still evil. It doesn't change the fact that they were led into it. So Israel was poorly served by their leaders, including kings who were often evil. And when the head of the snake is diseased, the whole body will be as well. And God wasn't going to tolerate any of this any longer. He wasn't going to dwell among them any longer. And Israel's leaders have produced such a bleak outcome for the people that God is now warning them that if you still want some hope to survive this, the only hope you have remaining is that you submit to those who are coming to conquer you. The Lord tells Ezekiel of these lies, and then he corrects them in what I read, verses 4 through 12. He begins by saying, I know what they're saying. I know their thoughts. I know the intentions of their heart. God's power to know your heart is symbolized in the very fact that the cherubim have all their eyes everywhere they go. They can see everything. He knows these men weren't seeking to advise these people in truth or godliness. What they were really trying to do was manipulate the situation to protect their power. Just think what would happen to their power if the people actually did what Jeremiah told them to do. They'd have no one to lead. 
So they're thinking that somehow against God, they can survive in that city. And so they contradict the word of God. Notice he says, you say you have flesh in a pot. Well, the slain in the city will be that flesh. Here's what he's saying. These men are multiplying the dead in the city. They are literally adding to the number who will die. Now, they aren't killing them personally, but by their advice, what they're doing is they are leading to more loss of life than would have otherwise happened by convincing people to fight back. If they had heeded Jeremiah's word, more of them would have survived. That's his point. And then in verse 11, the Lord mocks them by their own statement. He says, you say your flesh in the pot. Well, that flesh is going to be slain rather than preserved. That pot's not going to save you. That pot's going to become your death. And then he says, moreover, you're not going to stay in the pot. This whole notion that you can survive inside the city, it's completely bankrupt. And to show you that, he says, you're going to find yourselves crossing the border of Israel. This is an unimaginable outcome for these people. To literally be walking away from the promised land, walking out of it, as it were, through the border into Babylon. Not only then is the city not going to be a sanctuary for them, neither will the whole land of Israel. History records as these people did cross Israel's border when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took the third wave of exiles. They crossed to the city called Riblah in Israel. It's still there today. As Nebuchadnezzar came down from Babylon to meet this third wave of exiles, he met them at Riblah at that border crossing. And history records that he executed all of Israel's civic leaders as punishment for having rebelled against him a third time. So all these 25 men who were telling everyone that they don't need to worry, we're going to stay like flesh in a pot, they get executed as they cross the border, just as God said. Two of these men executed are Jazaniah and Pelatiah. Remember their names? God hears, God delivers. So even as these men would claim God did not hear them and did not exist, God in fact did hear them. And therefore, he delivered a just response to their sin. So the message is clear. If Jerusalem cannot be a sanctuary for God, for his glory, well, then it's not going to be a sanctuary for his people either. If they will not live by his precepts, then they will not live at all. And they will not live in the light of his presence. They learned this lesson in a very visceral way, watching their city destroyed, watching their families dragged away in the midst of that. But that principle is still true to us. It just doesn't necessarily require that God act in the same way to show us this truth. Even if you never see disasters, it is true that God continues to expect us to live according to his precepts, in peace, in the light of his presence, so long as we give attention to those things. Or we can go the other route. We can heed evil counsel. We can follow the lusts of our heart. And when we do that, we experience the darkness that follows as a result. Not necessarily physical results, not necessarily death, but no one escapes the notice of the Lord. And he always has a perfect response to expose our hearts and to correct our ways. He is also merciful and ready to receive us back when we recognize our mistakes. It's not as though we get one chance. But the fact remains that if we take for granted God's mercy or we take for granted his forgiveness, he would be wrong to let us live in that kind of state without some response eventually. It's actually counterproductive to our spiritual development that we be allowed to sin in that way with no response from God. Next, the Lord gives Ezekiel a vision confirming the outcome for these two men. Verse 13. Now it came about that as I prophesied that Pelatiah son of Benaiah died. And then I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, 
are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. So Ezekiel sees one of these two guys that he mentioned earlier, Pelatiah, just drop dead right there at the city gate. Now remember, we've said here on a number of occasions, the visions that we see depicted here in these several chapters, none of them are literal, meaning these are not the ways in which God is going to actually conduct all of these occurrences. He's not going to take the city with angels and cherubim. And we know that these things actually took place through the Babylonian army. Similarly, we know that Pelatiah does not die while sitting by the gate. He dies when he reaches the border at Riblah. But what we're learning is why he dies. And so God brings him to death in the vision so that Ezekiel can understand God's intentions. Seeing the man die actually leads Ezekiel to ask the Lord the question that God wants to answer. It's the same one he asked in the prior chapter. Are you putting an end to all of Israel? When I see you killing right now the the leadership, is that a sign to me that all of Israel is about to get wiped out? The word remnant is used there. You notice that? He asked if the Lord is putting the remnant to an end. This is a bit confusing because I have used the word here in a very technical sense in weeks past. The remnant is all believing Israel. We've used that term, and that's how the Bible uses that term quite a bit. But in this context, it's clear that he does not mean the word that way. This is where context is so important to interpretation. The context here is Pelatiah. He's talking about Pelatiah dying. Pelatiah is obviously not one of the remnant. Pelatiah is not a believing Jew. And yet, Ezekiel refers to him as part of the remnant. Which means that he's using the word here differently. He's using here the word to refer to those who remain in the city. All of them. The remnant of the people of Israel. Those who have not yet gone into exile. That's how he's using the word here. In a very specific way. So Ezekiel is distraught at the prospect of seeing all remaining Jews in the land extinguished. This is a Jewish nightmare. This is the nightmare that still drives Jewish political thinking today in the nation of Israel. This idea that Israel could be extinguished. This idea that they would cease to be as a people in their land. That is the driving force of political concern among Israel. And it's a spiritual concern in the Bible. In fact, in Israel, in their history, as they took possession of the land in 1948, and as they were dealing with the potential of Arab war in that time, One of the things that Ben-Gurion said to all of those who were leading the Zionist movement to establish Israel, one of the things he said to them is, no Jew will give up an inch of land. If there is a Jew living somewhere today in Israel, they are not permitted to retreat or to surrender. No one was allowed to surrender or retreat from any position they had. We can't afford that. We can't afford to give up anything, or we cease to be. If we give up everything, eventually we'll cease to be. That's his concern here. Lord, I understand what you've done so far, speaking as Ezekiel. I understand what you've done so far. I understand why we're here. I understand why your presence had to leave. But are you going to extinguish the remnant, those remaining in the land? Are we really at the point where Israel won't exist anymore? Notice the Lord's response, verses 15 through 16. Essentially, he says yes. (laughs) In the sense that at least for a time, your people will not be in the land. He tells Ezekiel that those who remain in the city are those who have been saying to themselves that the exiles that have already gone deserve to be gone. That's what he means when he says those words. He says, your brothers and sisters have been telling one another that Ezekiel and all the other exiles should go far from the Lord because the Lord has given us possession of the land instead of you. They feel as though the exiles deserve to be taken away from the presence of the Lord, and they assume that they have been left behind because somehow the Lord judges them more worthy and they've been awarded the city 
in place of Ezekiel and the exiles. What's he saying to Ezekiel? In a nutshell, he's saying to Ezekiel, your counterparts in Jerusalem don't get it. They don't understand what's been going on here. They've actually used it as excuse for their sin, and they've said God is somehow endorsing them by leaving them in the land. Under those circumstances, can I leave them in the land? Could I support that thinking? That's effectively what he's saying. The presence of the Lord in the city seems to be the thing that these people are hanging their hat on for security and for affirmation. And so the Lord of the Lord is about to leave the city so that they will no longer have that excuse. And then he's going to come in and he's going to remove them as well so that they will not be confused any longer as to the Lord's intent. A day is coming, and did come for them, in which the final remnant of Israel is removed from the land. And then comes a glimmer of hope. Here we're going to have the very first reason for real hope that we've yet seen in the book of Ezekiel. The next passage introduces one of the most important themes of the book, a theme that is developed in much greater detail over many chapters later in the book. This is that back end of good news I said was coming, and the Lord begins to introduce it just gently here. For now, let's just consider what he says in conjunction with his departure. He says in verse 16, Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while, while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart, And put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people. And I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. The Lord begins to speak now from a future point of view. And you notice that because the verb tenses all go to past tense. Now, he's talking about a day to come in which Israel is brought back into the land, and we're still at the point here where they have yet to be fully taken out of it. So he's clearly moved well ahead of where we are here, and he's looking backward on time from that future point of view, and he's talking in the past tense about what's about to happen. He says in verse 16, though I removed my people from the city, he has yet to finish doing that, but he speaks about it coming to pass. He says, though I removed my people from the city, I scattered them far away among the nations of the world. Nevertheless, he says, while they're out there scattered in the world, I'll be a sanctuary for them. He's describing the way the Lord intends to protect his people while they are in exile, maintaining their identity, not allowing the Jewish people to be extinguished, even though they're not in their own land. And that directly addresses Ezekiel's concern. So Ezekiel, and probably anyone who was Jewish at that time, had assumed that the only way that Jewish people could maintain their identity and their security was if they stayed in the land, within the protections of the borders and the city, and if the Lord dwelled with them, protecting them by his very presence at the temple. And that makes some sense. But what the Lord's saying to Ezekiel now is, that doesn't have to be. I can scatter you and preserve you. I can be outside the land and yet still dwell with you. And I will do that. Though it will be in a way that doesn't appear as though I'm with you at times. It will be different than the way I'm dwelling with you now. And certainly without the Lord's grace, this people would have disappeared very quickly had they been scattered without his dwelling presence, his protecting presence. Speaking about the way human populations 
change over time, it would have been impossible for such a small group of people to maintain their identity living in other countries over centuries. It's never happened before. There's no other group you can name that's done that. Yet, that's exactly what happened. They've survived it. And the Lord says, I'll be their sanctuary during that time. I will turn to them in their afflictions. I will hear them. I will, they will seek my covenants while they're outside the land. They will um, forsake their evil ancestors' idolatry, and they will preserve their identity. This is a really remarkable thing, historically speaking. This is a really remarkable thing. So they're in the land. They have the benefit of being their own people under their own authority with a temple, with the glory of God in the temple. All right, That's pretty remarkable. And what are they doing? They are awash in idolatry. So God scatters them where their influence on each other is very muted. They aren't in company with each other like they used to be. They're all scattered in little pockets. They're living in cultures that have other views of religion and other cultural identity. They're they're susceptible to persecution. They're more likely to be assumed into those populations than to remain distinct if nature would take its course. They don't have a temple. They don't have the glory of God. And yet, what happens? Out of the scattering, Israel becomes super-Orthodox again. You know, the idea of ultra-Orthodox Jews, that you'll see sometimes in pictures, the guys that wear the black hats and the long robes and the, the hair that's all coming down like this with the, all the stuff they do that's supposedly how they observe the law. We call that ultra-Orthodox. That's a movement that began in Poland in the medieval times as a response to their scattering, to the concern that they had as a people that they needed to remain ideologically pure. And the best way to do that was to become even more distinct. It's this weird reaction that God intended that his people would actually return to orthodoxy, but under the most disadvantaged circumstances. That's what he means when he tells Ezekiel, don't worry, I've got a plan. He says in verse 16, this exile will be for a little while. Now that's a really interesting statement when you think about how long it's been. It started in 605 B.C. It's kind of waxed and waned over the centuries. The last big scattering was in A.D. 70. Now we're seeing this historic regathering that's actually a fulfillment of what Ezekiel is going to tell us about later. But my point is, that's thousands of years. It's a little while on God's timetable. We know the people were actually in exile in Babylon for only 70 years. And I think part of what he's referring to is that little while of being in exile for 70 years, that little time in history. But when you look at all that he's promising for Israel here, the end of that is far future from even us today. So he's talking about a different timeline here. He's not just talking about Babylon. Notice in verse 17, he says, At the end of this little time, you'll see Israel returning to her land, possessing it again. And notice he says, not just part of the land, but the Lord says, they will possess the land of Israel. The Lord means the entire land that was promised to Israel, that is to Jacob, and that has not yet been fulfilled. Even the exiles that came back after 70 years from Babylon, they did not possess what we're talking about here. They possessed a portion of it. That is a part of the prophecy that tells us we're looking to something yet still to come. Furthermore, the Lord says that when they return to the land, they're going to put away all their idols once and for all. I mentioned here in a previous week that one of the effects of the Babylonian captivity is it put an end to idolatry in the nation of Israel. And that is true. But this promise goes far beyond just that external religious practice. Because if you look in verses 19 and 20, he goes on to explain what the putting away of idolatry will lead to. In place of idolatry, what will they have? And he says they will have one heart. Now what that means specifically is every single Jew living in Israel, will share the same 
heart, the same spiritual perspective. You will no longer have the unbelieving, rebellious Israel and the remnant believing Israel. That's two hearts. Rather, we will have a single group of people with the common heart. And what will that common heart be? Will it be a common heart of rebellion? No. It's the common heart of faith, of living in faith. And more than just in faith, he says that heart of stone will be gone, the one that didn't know him and didn't obey him. In its place, you get a heart of flesh, which means a soft heart, capable of knowing him, responding to his voice, obeying him. And it goes even more dramatic than that. He says the entire nation will walk in that one heart in the law. Keeping it. Now, remember what we're saying. Anytime someone is said to keep the law, to do the law, it's saying they're sinless. It's not saying they're trying. It's saying they've achieved doing the law without exception. And the only way you can be sinless is if you have no sin, by definition. I know that was complicated, but I studied. You know, it's all my study coming to bear on that. What we're getting at is they're glorified. They're not in a body of sin any longer. They're living in the glorified state that you and I will know on our resurrection. So with all of those details, you come to an unavoidable conclusion. He's talking about Israel in the kingdom, glorified, sinless, of one heart, no exceptions, back in the land, all of the land, as promised. There's a period in history designed to fulfill all those promises. We call it the kingdom. It's what Israel has been looking for and hoping for. It's what was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What makes all of that possible? Jesus Christ. Right? It's his death on the cross that fulfills the law, then gives opportunity for God to show mercy to his people and bring them into glory. That's the the message of the gospel. So this is all presupposing the Messiah has done his work. That's how far God is looking. He's turning to Ezekiel and he's saying, I know you're concerned about what I'm about to do. But let me show you more of what's coming so that you keep it in perspective. I'm not destroying my people. I'm working with my people in a way that's necessary given their sin. And I will one day do the unimaginable. I will bring them to a place of glory. Don't worry. So the people of God are in good hands. That is, in the Lord's hands. But ironically, they're not in the good hands of their leaders. Because their leaders are far from good. And the Lord says in verse 21, Those who are not of good, who do not know me, who have been causing all this trouble, they will perish. I'll bring the consequences that they sowed back on their head. This is a 360 degree full view of God's relationship with his people. They are bound to him by covenant. He will not walk away from them. But by that same token, he cannot overlook the sins that they commit against him. Especially when the covenant itself warns them that there are consequences for doing so. Like we talked about here, I think, in past weeks, right? If you want to believe in the true God who has saved you, you need to believe in all aspects of who he is. And if you want to be confident in his promises to save you, despite your sin, then you certainly can't be shocked when he holds people accountable for their sin. He's faithful on both sides. So he had promised their father Abraham at a past point that he would bring blessing to him and to his descendants. And the Lord is faithful to that promise. There is a kingdom coming. One day Israel will receive what they've been promised. And as the Lord reveals here, before even that happens, he'll regather them. He'll give them one heart. He'll prepare them to be in that kingdom. So I ask you this, which is more remarkable when you think of all that God is doing here? Is it more remarkable to you that he is bringing judgment against a people that worship idols and commit all of the abominations that you've seen? Or that he would bring glory and honor and blessing to that very same people? Which is more remarkable to you? 
Right? It, it seems to be that God was only doing what should be done when he brings judgment. And if that's true, then you should be thoroughly amazed at his grace when he promises to bring redemption to that same group of people as, as well. It's so easy to get focused on the downside of this whole equation and think to yourselves, God's surely not showing a lot of mercy to these people. He's being very harsh with his people. Despite all of what they're doing, we still feel that way sometimes. But we forget that was a step to a larger plan. And the larger plan is he's going to bring all these amazing blessings to this very same group of people, and they're not going to have done anything to deserve it. It's not as though they got better. It's not as though over the centuries they suddenly became a better group of people, more honoring and faithful to him in ways that then justify all of his mercy. No, no more than we did. That brings us back to the the story of the departure of God's glory. And let's wrap up the glory part of this, verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. So the vision that I had seen left me. Then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Once again, we have the movement of the Lord's glory. Like before, it's initiated by the supernatural escort, the cherubim upholding the glory of God. And as he moves now, remember where he is now. He started over the east gate. And at the east gate, they had those 25 civic leaders. That's where we started today. Now he's moving again. He's moving from the east gate to a point overlooking the city on a mountain that's just east of the city of Jerusalem. It's actually a little higher than the mountain that the city itself sits on. And just as the Lord told Ezekiel that the leaders wouldn't be safe in the city because the glory of the Lord is going to be gone, it won't protect them, well, the glory is not going to inhabit the temple or the court or even the city itself. It's leaving now altogether from the city. So it started in the Holy of Holies, moved out of the temple, was in the court, moved out of the court, sat on the wall, which is effectively saying it was in the city, and now it's leaving the city. Now it's not even a part of the city anymore. Next destination is this mountain. Now, this particular pinnacle that is just east of the city, it's one of several hills that surround the hill on which the city of Jerusalem sits. So the the city of Jerusalem, and at that time it was very small, and the temple itself, which was just north of the city, they sat on a sloping mountain hillside called Mount Moriah. And the hills that surrounded the city in that time had no particular name. There were some names given to the region, but they didn't have names that were very prominent, nothing that stuck for us today. But... In later times, this hill that is east of the city of Jerusalem had a name, has been given a name, a very prominent name, a name you know very well. It's the Mount of Olives. So this is the final stopping point for the Shekinah glory. Now, Scripture never tells us how long the glory of God remains on the Mount of Olives before it finally departed the earth altogether. We know it went somewhere because it ain't there today. right? The glory of God is not visible there today. So at some point subsequent to this moment it left, perhaps it remained long enough to witness the destruction of the city as the third wave of Babylonian soldiers came in and destroyed it. Maybe the glory of God just witnessed over it as a witness against them. We don't know. Rabbis in Israel who have reflected on this passage over the centuries have taught that the glory remained on the Mount of Olives for three and a half years. We don't know why they arrived at that number, but it's a very interesting number. That detail brings us back to our discussion of the picture of Christ that is revealed in all of these movements of the glory of God. Let me pull it back together for you. Remember last week we read from John chapter 1. 
that the coming of the Messiah was the arrival of the light of God's Shekinah glory, but in an even fuller form, in the person of Jesus. Paul told us in Colossians 1, Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. That glory, that is of Christ himself, it came and was visible among men for how long? Three and a half years. Before it too departed from the earth. And when Jesus left the earth, from where did he ascend? From the Mount of Olives. And that detail draws us to that clear connection between the movement of the glory of God outward and the glory of Christ. When Jesus ascended, the disciples who witnessed that departure were told this. Acts 1.9 After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. These two men standing next to the disciples are angels. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now think about that for a minute. The angels said, and I'm going to start using the term glory of God here. The angels declared that the glory of God would return from heaven in the same way that he departed. And we know how Jesus departed. We know how the glory of God also departed from the temple in this earlier day. And if we lay the two on top of one another, we get a perfect picture of how the glory of God is going to return. How do we expect the Lord's return? Well, first we know that his arrival into the city of Jerusalem will begin at which location, according to prophets. Zechariah describes it this way. Zechariah 14.3. Speaking of the Lord's return, his second coming. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move to the north and the other half to the south. It goes on from there to describe the events. But this happens at the very end of the seven-year tribulation on earth, the moment of the Lord's second coming, when he finally comes back to the earth, his first place to arrive near the city is on the Mount of Olives, the place where he departed, just as the angels declared. The glory of God, once again, overlooking the city from the Mount of Olives. Following his arrival, the Lord, the glory of God, and the person of Christ will retrace the steps that he took when he departed in the day of Ezekiel. He starts at the Mount of Olives. Later, the next step he takes, according to Ezekiel, Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 43, something we'll study later, that this is the next place he goes. Chapter 43, verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. Same gate. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kebar. And I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east. So just as the glory left through the east gate, it will one day return back through the east gate. That east gate, by the way, is very different than the one there is today. You might know that the one there today is all walled up, bricked up by the Muslims when they controlled Jerusalem centuries ago. They did brick it up thinking that they could do something to stop Christians and Jews from looking for a Messiah's return. But the irony is that the gate in which he comes through is not the one that's there now. It's the millennial temple gate. So it doesn't even exist yet. Moving on. From there, the Lord retraces his steps into the court and into the temple itself. Ezekiel 43, 5. 
And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. You notice he's coming back from where he once was taken. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Remember that? Then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. You see, this is the flip side that we haven't even gotten to yet, chapters away. But you see now the picture. You see the Lord's departure picturing the manner of his second coming. Why is this important? Why is this picture important? Let me suggest to you, this is the silver lining in this otherwise very dark cloud hanging over Israel in these chapters. That even in the midst of these dark times, times of judgment, death, exile, there is still reason for hope. And the Lord wants His people, through the prophet, to see this pause for hope so that He has created in the departure of His glory a little road map of sorts, a picture of what's yet to come when He returns. One day he comes back. One day the people come back. One day the Lord comes back. One day he dwells with them. One day they'll have a heart to know him and follow him. And there won't be any more abominations. And no one's going to put their own stuff up by my threshold, he says. No one's going to be doing their own stuff in the court instead of worshiping me. One day, in my kindness and in my mercy, I'm going to restore Israel despite what they've done. And he blesses them beyond all measure, certainly beyond anything they deserve. And here's the last piece we should remember. We're going to be there too. We get to be blessed because they get blessed. By the Lord's gracious choice, He has promised us a similar future. And a day when we will have soft hearts, and a day in which we will obey Him perfectly, and a day in which we get to dwell with Him again in glory. And our faith in Christ has made that possible, not anything we've done to earn it. It's the same story, we just don't have the same history. Although we have our own history, which is probably equally bad in its own way. This is the silver lining piece of the story that we don't want to lose sight of, even as we're studying all the bad things that God is doing to Israel. He's leaving them a little breadcrumb trail to say, okay, this is happening now, but I'm coming back. And he comes back through Christ. Interestingly, as we end today, in the first coming of Christ, though he doesn't follow this exact pattern because it's not the fulfillment of it, he does touch on it. He spends time in the temple. He spends time in the court. He spends time in the Mount of Olives. He spends time with everyone in a very similar fashion, though not in a fulfillment of all of these things. For that still awaits a second coming. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the deep things of your word. We thank you for the wisdom that you have placed in your word so that we would come to it, Father, with a, an expectation that there is something there for us, something beyond our understanding, something deep and meaningful, something that will draw us closer to you, to a grander appreciation of your word and to your plan. Thank you, Father, that you did not forsake your people, that you have counted us as one of them as a people grafted in so that we may know the promises you've given to Israel. Thank you, Lord, for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.